For those of you guys watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And I just want to pray for us right now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And that in itself is just great news. We love you because you first loved us. Lord, um, we begin asking for prayer for President Biden. I pray that you'd strengthen him, encourage him, that you'd give him a special grace in his life, that you'd help him to make good and wise decisions, Lord. As for all of our leaders, Lord, I pray that you'd protect him, his, his health, his body, his mental faculties. I also, Lord, I pray for his salvation, for Vladimir Putin. I pray that you'd can fuse and frustrate his wicked plans. I pray for his salvation. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, and we pray for their salvation. So many of those guys, they don't know you. They don't love you. And Lord, we, uh, we also think of right now the persecuted church. Leah Sherabu, still being held in captivity by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian, or, or Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian, Pastor Wang or Pastor John imprisoned in China, Lord, for the, the church, Lord, for the Christians, Lord, in, in North Korea, in Somalia, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan, in Afghanistan. We pray, Lord, for strength, as we try to honor what the author of Hebrews tells us to do, to remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please, God, help them. Please help them, God. And Lord, today I pray that you'd help us. For those of us who just need encouragement, I pray for encouragement. Those of us who need conviction, I pray for conviction. I pray, Lord, that you'd keep me from error, I pray that you'd help me to say only what you want me to say. Lord, if there's something you don't want me to say, don't let me say it today. And if there's something I need to say that I have not planned on saying, I pray that you'd give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the, the Holy Spirit in my life. And Jesus, I just pray we hear from you today. Like whatever other th thoughts are competing for our attention, we just want to hear from you. So help us. We need you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we begin part 14 today of our journey through John's Gospel. If you are here for the first time, you should know we love expository preaching at Lynchburg City Church because it's awesome. And if you don't know what expository preaching is, it's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the story. So I'm not going to come up here and bring a bunch of random verses in and then just kind of talk about whatever I want to talk about um, because then we miss the main point of what the author of the text is trying to say. And not only that, but it's a, it's a really easy way to take verses out of context. So that's why we love, one of the many reasons we love expository preaching. And so this is the, the 14th sermon I've preached through John's Gospel. And we're going to start in chapter 519. And it's almost kind of going to function as a part two of last week's sermon. And if you weren't here last week, that's okay. I'm going to get you caught up to speed in about 60 seconds. Here's what happens. Jesus rolls in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, of John's Gospel, and he goes to the, the northeast corner of the city to the two twin pools of Bethesda, and there's a bunch of guys who have all types of health issues, but one guy in particular hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and he heals them. Does this miracle. 
And after he heals them, the religious leaders, when they find out that Jesus healed this guy, instead of being like, oh, wow, you did a miracle, you healed a guy, praise be to God, they say, dude, did you see the, the calendar? You, you healed him on a Sabbath. That's all they're concerned about is that Jesus healed the dude on a Sabbath. It's the only issue that they have. And so Jesus talks to them and he says, all right, now God, he works on the Sabbath. Yes, he created the world and rested on the Sabbath, but we, we know that our God doesn't sleep, nor does he slumber. He, he works throughout the week, right? Yeah, of course. Well, then why should you be so surprised that his son also is working throughout the week? At that point, he's in big trouble, because not only is he a Sabbath breaker, now he's a blasphemer, and they hate him. And so today, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 5, is Jesus in Jerusalem speaking to all these religious people, giving this very extended, long monologue to them. So Jesus is talking, he's in Jerusalem, he's responding to, to their critique that he dared heal the guy on the Sabbath. And let's get into it. Chapter 5, verse 19. Then, excuse me, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, that's important, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus wants to clarify right now that whatever making himself equal with God, back in verse 18, whatever that may mean, it doesn't mean that he's operating on his own. It doesn't mean that he's going rogue right now. And it's also worth noting that when he kicks this monologue off with the phrase, Truly, truly, he's saying you need to pay attention. Right now. You need to pay attention right now. Because what I'm about to say is really important. In fact, this is one of 25 times in John's gospel where you're going to see this phrase, truly, truly, show up. And I think it's especially significant today in the world we live in. Especially since the world we live in today doesn't really believe in truth. In the world we live in today, truth is whatever you want it to be. We're told, just go live your own truth. And Jesus says, no, I'll tell you what truth is. I'll tell you what truth is. I'll show you what truth is. I'll illustrate this a little bit further. In the wake of this cultural denial of absolute truth, I recently found myself at the Command and General Staff College at beautiful, gorgeous Fort Dix, New Jersey. <laughs> a true paradise gym unlike any other. And that's because I was ordered to go there by the United States Army. And uh, I was ordered to go there by the Army because I've been in the Army for 14 years. I'm an Army major, I'm a brigade chaplain at a unit down in North Carolina, and I'm in my kind of three-year window where I'm getting looked at for promotion to lieutenant colonel. And so the Army says, you've got to go to the Command and General Staff College, and I'm there in a classroom of 16 other officers. I'm the only chaplain there. There's a special forces guy. There's an infantry guy. There's an air defense artillery guy. There's a, a veterinarian and a nurse and a doctor and a lawyer. Just a smorgasbord of different types of people. And uh, in short... The school is designed for argumentation, debate, critical thinking, and analysis. That's, that's what they want us to do. And so it's kind of set up in a horseshoe so we can all dialogue amongst each other. And the very first day there in class, we're talking about, of all things, truth. And see where I'm going right now. 
one of my classmates decides to say, there is absolutely no way anyone can, with any degree of certainty, say that anything is certain. That's what he said. And for those of you guys who don't know, I, I have a, a medical issue. Um, I've recently developed the last few years. I don't know how serious it is, but basically when I hear something stupid, <laughs> I have uh, involuntary reflexes that sometimes go like this. And before I could grab my arm and pull it down, one of my instructors, the colonel, he said, oh, chaplain, I see that hand. And I said, well, uh, yes, sir. I guess I'd just like to ask my colleague across the room, uh, in light of the comment that you just made, how certain are you about it? <laughs> and he was like, what? And then people started laughing and giggling, and they, and they realized what I was getting at, right? Because that's the world we live in. Truth is whatever you want it to be. You go live your own truth. That's all that matters. And that's not what the Bible says. See, truth isn't what you want it to be. It's not what you think it should be. It's what it actually is. And what it is, is what God says it is. Right? It's what this book says, and that's precisely what Jesus is saying right now to these religious people. God has a son, I'm him, and I do what I see the Father doing. I copy him. We act in perfect synchronization. That's what he's saying right here. And then we come to verse 20, and it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Verse 20 is going to answer two questions. How and why? How and why? That's what verse 20 is going to answer. How is it that Jesus knows exactly what to do and when to do it? Answer? Because the Father shows him. And, and why does the Father show him? Answer? Because the Father loves him. He loves him. The Father really loves the Son. A lot. And because he loves his son, he shows his son what he's doing. Like Jesus isn't being kept in the dark. He, he, he's not waiting to know what happens, like a text message to come through. He's, he's not waiting to learn what the next set of instructions are because he already knows what they are. Because the Father has shown him. And when the Father shows him what he's doing, it's always very impressive. It's, it's always amazing. It's always super beautiful and powerful. And, and these things that Jesus is doing, that the Father is showing him, are done according to verse 20, so that they may marvel. So that they may marvel. That's the reason. So if you're here today, and you've ever wondered why God does anything, or what God's motives are for doing things, verse 20 makes it very clear that we would marvel, that we would be wowed, that we would draw near to him. In other words, everything that God does is for God. It's for his namesake. It's for his glory. And, and this can be a little bit of a struggle sometimes for some people, maybe some more than others, because it can certainly come across as vanity or arrogance or pride. Brad Pitt... Oprah Winfrey, C.S. Lewis, they, they all struggled with elements of this. With all the, the praise language of the scriptures, C.S. Lewis said it seemed to him before he became a Christian that God was like this old, vain woman just seeking after compliments. Because all throughout the scriptures, 
We're told to praise God, to delight in God, to rejoice in God, to glorify God. As verse 20 says, to marvel at the works of God. And so the reality is, if you or I loved in that way, yes, it would come across as egotistical and selfish, maybe not even genuine love. But what you have to remember is that the rules of humility that apply to the creature do not apply to the creator. That is why God is first and foremost for himself. So I thought God's for me. Oh, God is for you, but he's first and foremost for himself. So how does that work out? Because if God is for anyone or anything more so than himself, like, like if that's the, the apex of what he's for and he puts something above that, then he commits idolatry. He says there's something more important, more valuable than me, the creator of the universe who speaks the world into existence. And so that's why I try to be really careful talking, preaching, to put a very limited emphasis on things like how special you are or how much you matter to God. Like, that's true, okay? I'm not not denying that. But as we see in verse 20, the goal isn't that you marvel at yourself. The goal is that you marvel at what God has done. And unfortunately, many churches today in this country, they they don't teach this. And and as a result, they don't have a very God-centered theology. They have a man-centered theology in which everyone, including God, is bowing down to you as the greatest priority. But it's okay because we package it in Christianese and we'll just say things like how you're you're God's princesses with the emphasis on the princess part. And boy, man, God, he's sure lucky to be the father of such fabulous women. Lucky God. He does love you. You do matter to him but I don't want you walking out the door having a higher view of yourself. You don't need a higher view of yourself. You need a higher view of God. That's what you need. You need a higher view of yourself. You just said the world will tell you that all day long. We were made to marvel at the works of God and to glorify the name of God. Every single one of us, that's why you were made. You're like, I wonder why I was made. I wonder why I'm here. I wonder what my purpose is. I wonder what my calling is. I'll tell you what it is. You picked a great Sunday, guys. Or have you not heard that it was said, the prophet Isaiah, in the 43rd chapter, in the 6th verse, he says, I will say to the north, old small group memory verse here, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were created for the glory of God. That's why, that's why you're here. That's why you're majoring in whatever you're majoring in. That's, where you're, that's why you're working whatever job you're working in. It's not for a paycheck primarily, it's for making much of the king. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul, whether I eat or whether I drink or whether I study or whether I go to this exam or this class or this job or this fun activity, I'm doing everything for God. That's that's the goal, that's the purpose of why we're here. And this would of course include marvelous, marvelous, there's that word from verse 20. Marvelous examples like the healing that's already taken place of the guy who couldn't walk for 38 years at the beginning of chapter 5. And what was the problem? Jesus does this miracle, heals the guy who can't walk for 38 years. Everyone should be like, wow, wow. And they're like, it was a Sabbath. Dude, are you for real, dude? It was a Sabbath? That's your response? That's the problem with the world. They they don't recognize such things because they don't want to recognize such things. They want to ignore them. They want to pretend that they don't exist. They want to bury their head in the sand. That way they don't have to admit the truth. 
so they can continue pretending that truth is whatever they want it to be. And so verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus, he's just going to keep dropping these truth bombs, truth claims. See, in the Old Testament, it was understood that the prerogative to take life belonged to God. And that was the only one as well who could take it away. In fact, 2 Kings 5-7 would say, Am I God to kill and make alive? So at uh, this time in the first century, this was not a very controversial consensus way of thinking. And Jesus knows that. He knows this is the mainstream way of thinking of the religious people he's talking to. And so what Jesus is saying is that in the same way that God has the right to give and take away life, because he's God, the Son likewise has the authority to give life. He has the authority to give it in this life and the life to come. And the way he gives it in this life, spiritual life, is received immediately. Like we, we receive the spiritual life immediately when we hear Jesus' words and we believe them. Of course, that's not the only life he gives, and that's because for every Christian, we also we look forward to the future, to the resurrected life. You might even say, if you were the Apostle Paul, that the spiritual life that we now receive is a sort of down payment for the future resurrected life that we will experience. And so in verse 22, he continues, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Father doesn't judge anybody, he's given all judgment to the Son. But, hold on. I'm pretty sure in 336, there it is, yeah. In 336, we're told that if you don't believe in the Son, if you don't believe in Jesus... The wrath of God remains on you. Which sort of seems like God the Father is judging. And that is because he is judging. You're like, whoa, whoa, verse 22 just said the Father judges no one. So how do we understand that? I think the way that we understand that, the way we harmonize like a 336 and uh, a 522, is that when the text speaks of not judging, what I believe the Apostle John has in mind is that the Father doesn't go off on his own and judge someone without Jesus involved in the process. I mean, after all, verse 19 already said that. It already said that whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. They're in this perfect synchronization. They're perfectly operating together. That's what's happening here. And we continue mid-sentence, verse 23, it says, that all, now here's the reason why for the verse 22, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The reason that the Father gives all judgment to the Son in verse 22, that the motivation, Jesus says, is now explained here in verse 23, that all may honor the Son. Have you, have you ever had an experience in which you find out someone who presents themselves as totally pagan, supposedly identifies as a Christian, and you're in shock because five minutes ago they were identifying themselves as a, as a cat and explaining their pronouns to you. It's like one second they're, they're dropping a string of F words on repeat and the next they're bragging about all their sexual conquests and in the same sentence they mention, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too. This is what verse 23 is getting at. Like if you want to know if someone really knows God, here's the test. And that is if they honor the Son if they honor Jesus. And what this means is if they honor him for who he is, God's only son, the savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, the great God king. And if the answer is no, 
then they don't really know God, despite whatever claims they may make, despite the fact that they got saved at summer camp, despite the fact that they prayed and asked Jesus to come into their heart, despite the fact that they've been baptized, despite the fact that they think they're a good person or a very religious person, and the reason is because of what verse 23 just says. The reason is because if you fail to respect and honor the Son for who He really is, you fail to actually know the Father, and in turn, you fail to actually know God. And so... Jesus continues in verse 24, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The, the, the truth is we are closer to death in this moment than we ever have been. You are closer right now in this moment to taking your final breath than, than you really ever have been, than I think we ever actually realize. See, when, when you woke up today, you moved one day closer to your last day. You're going to die, and, and, and it's going to come maybe sooner than you realize. Every day you wake up, you are one day closer to your last. It can't be stopped and it can't be delayed. And, and for some of us, maybe you got 80 more years. Maybe. For others of us, you got maybe eight weeks. Sobering thought to think that I might only have eight more weeks to live. Every day is one day closer to our last. And yet for the believers, we are reminded here in verse 24 that we will not see death we will not taste death. Yes, our, our bodies will die in a, in a physical sense, but we will be reunited instantly with Jesus. Or have you not heard that it was said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 to 10? Yes, we are of good courage. We are of good courage. Some of you are here today, you have zero courage. And you wonder regularly, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Am I really a believer? Some of you, it keeps you up at night wondering what's going to happen when I die. And you're genuinely scared. Then you need to hear this more than ever. Paul says we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please, that is to honor him as we just read in verse 23. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. You see, the, the beauty about eternal life, the beauty about eternal life that verse 24 speaks of is that once it starts, it cannot stop. It doesn't stop, not even for one second. You can't lose it. You can't misplace it. There are no pauses. There are no intermissions. There are no half times because it's eternal. And for those who believe in Jesus, who believe the Father who sent him, man, that's, that's really good news. And yet it's also really scary news if you don't. Especially, as we've just learned, if you don't honor him, even though you might actually claim to know him. Truly, truly, Jesus says in verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming 
and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour is coming and it is now here because Jesus is here and we know he's here because we can hear his voice and for the Christian there are of course two aspects of this resurrection. We talked about this already, spiritual and physical. Spiritually we experience this resurrection when Jesus saves us. When we place our faith in Jesus, we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and physically we experience this in the future state. All of this, very excellent news. Verse 25, very excellent news. Most people, I find, like excellent news. At least they they like it more than the other types of news. The scary news, the warning news. But once again, who's Jesus addressing right now? Jesus, in his monologue right now, is is he not addressing religious people? Yeah. He's addressing religious people, and the thing about Religious people is, regardless of what century they live in, religious people usually don't think warnings are necessary. Because they're religious. And being religious usually means that, well, you've already secured some type of fire insurance for yourself. And so they don't ever consider warnings. They don't ever think about the foundation of their faith. They don't ever think about their beliefs. Because such warnings for religious people, well, they're for other people. Not for themselves. And yet, this is precisely why Jesus is saying these things. As he says in verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Just as verse 25 speaks of hearing Jesus' voice and living, because the implication is if you hear his voice, if you hear him, you're going to follow him. That's the implication. You hear him, you do what he says. You hear him, you obey him. And now verse 26 explains how this works. In that God is self-existent, our life comes from him, He can give it away. He can take it. And just like God, Jesus has the same life-giving authority. And not only that, but as verse 27 says this, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the, key word, son of man. Key phrase, son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, we're given access to the future. A future now unfolding here in John chapter 5. And even for some of us, I dare say, in 2023. And it says, speaking of Jesus, hundreds of years prior to this story in John chapter 5, and I quote, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He's speaking about Jesus right now, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the origin of the phrase, son of man. This is Jesus' self, his favorite self-designating phrase for himself. As Acts 17.31 points out, because... He has fixed a day on which we will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So remember, remember what we just read about verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. And you might say, why does it matter? Why should I care? Like, what's the significance that Jesus be both a judge and an actual man in the execution of his judgment. Well, Mr. Piper would say the significance is this, and I quote, God deems it fitting that human beings be judged by one who knows what it's like to be human. You see, there is something suitable, Piper says, that the one who sentences men to heaven 
or to hell would be a suffering savior that the judge of all men will be able to look into every eye and say, I too was tempted and I too suffered. When we stand before God, when we face God, we will be facing one who went through it all and who knows it all. And so do not marvel at this verse 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When Jesus references doing good and doing evil in connection with life and judgment, he is not presenting a works-based system of salvation, which so many people believe is the system by which they will be judged. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because it would undo much of what He's already said up to this point, both in this chapter, specifically verses 24 and 25, as well as the great end zone verse of John 3, 16, in which the emphasis is put on hearing and believing. But rather, the proper way to understand what Jesus is saying is the good works show. Good works demonstrate. Good works are evidence of true faith. And evil works, or even the lack of good works, are evidence of the absence of true faith. I mean, have you ever seen an orange tree before? Anyone? No one in here has seen an orange tree. But let's just pretend somebody in here has seen an orange tree before. Maybe in a picture, a magazine when they were in third grade. I don't know. So much for no child gets left behind in the education system. You see an orange tree. You say, how do you know it's an orange tree? Like, it's got oranges on it. Is that not a good indicator? Yes, it is. And if it doesn't have orange trees, you might say, I'm not really sure if it's an orange tree. Or maybe that little orange tree is struggling a little bit. But the oranges on the tree are the evidence. They are the, you might say, fruit that the tree is there, the tree is good, the tree is alive. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verses 28 and 29. But make no mistake about it. You will go to hell unless you turn to Jesus. You will go to hell unless you bow the knee to King Jesus. There will even be people who go to hell despite saying the sinner's prayer and asking Jesus to come into their heart. And the reason is, we're not saved by prayers, we're saved by Jesus. And if Jesus has really saved you, you will honor him, you will love him, you will serve him. Listen, don't take my word for it. Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the reason I keep pressing on this is the same reason Jesus is pressing on the religious people in this story. Because the religious people in this story, they need to be saved. Just like religious people today, hearing this message, they need to be saved. And the problem is, religious people, they don't think they need to be saved. Religious people don't think they need to be saved. They don't think they need Jesus because many of them falsely believe they already have Jesus. I just think for a second of the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower, man goes into the field, sows the seed. The seed represents the gospel. And the seed falls on different types of soil. Specifically for this illustration, it falls on the thorny soil and the rocky soil. And in both of those examples, it says, they sprout right up. Falls among the thorns, sprouts right up. Falls among the rocks, sprouts right up. Right, those, those are the people like, they go to some youth conference. They sit in convocation. They go to a church service, right? They hear 
They're like, I want to be a Christian. Sign me up. I'm making a profession of faith. I'm walking the aisle. I'm filling out the, the, the card. I'm doing whatever I got to do. I'm a Christian. And then what does the text tell us? Because of either the love affair that they end up having with this world or because of the hardships and challenges of this world, they wither away and they never take root. That applies to many people. That applies to many people who profess to be Christians. You might even say many people who are religious, who think that they're Christians. See, this message isn't a message of despair. This message is a, is, a, is a warning, a pleading to religious people so they don't perish. And this is the good news of the gospel because you don't need to die in your sin because Jesus died for your sin. This is, the, this is the main point of the story. Jesus is saying these true things to people who are very religious, who say they love God, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They don't, they don't care all about this guy, Jesus. Jesus tells us that the resurrection of the judgment is at hand here. And that means that Jesus is going to raise everyone who has ever lived from the dead. Whether it's Alexander the Great or Napoleon, whether it's Queen Elizabeth, whether it's Princess Diana, whether it's Michael Jackson, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein, he's going to raise every single person from the dead one day, including you, including me, every single one of us, he's going to raise from the dead. And the good news is, for those who love him, for those who trust him, for those who believe in him, for who he really is, not who you want him to be, they get life. They get life. But as for the rest, they get judgment. They get hell. They get a real place of eternal torment, a real place of eternal suffering. And so I'm not here today asking whether or not you've ever prayed the prayer. I'm not here today concerned with whether or not you've ever asked Jesus to come into your heart. I'm not here today asking if you think you're good enough or religious enough, because newsflash, you aren't, only Jesus is. Those things are not my concern, but his concern. That's my only concern, and that is do you hear his voice, and do you honor him, or do you ignore him? and determine what your version of truth is. And so the message of Jesus in John chapter 5 is a warning to a bunch of religious people, and that warning is, trust him, honor him, and believe in him, and you will be saved and spared from the wrath of God and the wrath to come. And so as the team comes, I want to pray today. Lord, a timely message to a bunch of religious people in the first century. And here in 2023, we re-examine a timely message to a room filled with people who are somewhat religious, maybe watching who are somewhat religious. Lord, I don't want any false assurances and so if there's anyone here, Lord, I pray you protect us from self-deception, from thinking that we're a Christian or that you and us are good if we really aren't good. If our faith really isn't built on solid ground, I pray that you would show us. I pray that you would make that clear to us. I pray that we would not just put our head in the sand and pretend everything's good because someone told us it was or because we feel like we've got fire insurance or whatever the issue may be, Lord, My prayer is that our faith would be built on a firm foundation, that it would be built on solid ground. 
because as your word says, we believe you, we honor you, and we believe who you are, and we honor who you are, who you are. Not who we want you to be, not who we think you should be, but who you actually are. The great God King that sent his only son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we should have died and pay the price we could not afford to pay. Protect us from self-deception today. Incline our hearts to you today. Seeing these religious people in this story, Lord, they should have been marveling at you and being wowed by you, but they weren't. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would not grow cold to your word in that way. We need your help, so help us and guide us. In your name we pray, amen.